This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Welcome to The Playlist Podcast. I'm one of your regular hosts, Charles Barfield, Managing Editor of The Playlist. For this episode, I'm presenting a new interview I conducted with filmmaker James DeMonico, the writer, director, and creator of The Purge franchise. But this time, he's not here to talk about horror, though we do talk quite a bit about The Purge at the end of the interview. Instead, he's here to discuss his new film, This is the Night, which serves as a true change of pace for the filmmaker. Unlike the films you probably know him best for, DeMonico's This is the Night is a coming-of-age film that simultaneously presents a lovely story about a family going through some serious growth over the course of one night, but it's also a love letter to cinema, the theater-going experience, and just how powerful watching a film in a crowd can be. And perhaps the most surprising aspect of This is the Night is how the entire plot sort of revolves around the theatrical release of Rocky III in the summer of 1982, as Staten Island buzzes with excitement as Sylvester Stallone's long-awaited film finally arrives. This is The Night is a film that is sentimental, sweet, often funny, with great performances from a cast led by Frank Grillo, Naomi Watts, and Bobby Cannavale. In the interview, we talk quite a bit about This is The Night and why now is the perfect time for DeMonica to release something completely different than The Purge. We also reminisce about theater going back in the day, because I'm old, and our hope that it survives this next generation. But that's not all. As a huge fan of The Purge, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to speak with the filmmaker about his massive franchise, as well as the politics that are hammered home in the films and the first details about what people can expect with The Purge 6, because yes, it appears that's going to happen and carry The Purge into the next stage of its story. Get excited, people. But before I throw it to the interview, I got to tell you, The Playlist Podcast is part of The Playlist Podcast Network, which includes Be Real, The Fourth Wall, Deep Focus, and more. And if you want to find us, you can check your podcast app of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, or anywhere else you find your favorite shows. So with that all out of the way, let's play the recent discussion I had with This Is The Night and The Purge filmmaker, James DeMonico. And if you're interested in checking out This Is The Night, the film hits select theaters on September 17th before going to VOD in about a week. So enjoy. Start with talking about your new one. Uh, this is the night. Uh, you're known as the the creative mastermind of the Purge franchise, right? But uh, yes. so that automatically makes people think like, oh, Purge guy's got a new movie out. It's got to be horror thriller. But this is the night is not that. Um, this is a coming of age film. It's sweet. It, it talks about the cultural impact of Rocky three of all things. So why did you feel like now is the time to, to kind of flip the script a little and, and go this route? It's weird. So it's in a strange way, my, my, the first one I directed, not wrote, you know, I had like negotiator and assault on precinct 13 before that, but then I directed a film called Staten Island, New York that had a little play here, did the festival sur- circuit. It was French finance. So we got a nice release in Europe. Uh, it was with Ethan Hawke, Vincent D'Onofrio, and Seymour Cassell. And oddly, this movie, This Is The Night, is much more in line with the sentiment, I think, of that movie. That movie is much more absurd, I'd say. I'm a Fellini fanatic, and that's more absurdist. But it has a sentiment to it. There's a love story between Ethan Hawke and Julianne Nicholson. So it's weird because though people have gotten to know me, know me, and I say this with no regret, through The Purge, I think, I don't want to say This Is The Night is more 
more me in a way, because when I think back to my first film, Staten Island, that I directed, I guess I'm almost, I, I'm almost got a schizophrenic way of looking, you know, of, of my, my, my writing, but yeah, it's uh people don't expect this at all, you know, from the purge guy in any way, shape or form. So even when I, uh, when I gave the script to Jason, I don't think he was really explained. Jason Blum who uh, produced it with Sebastian LeMercier. I don't think either one of them, Sebastian more, because Sebastian had produced my first film. He, so he was more in line with my sentiment. I have this very emotional side, very, he calls me, I'm, I'm a sap often. And, uh, <laughs> so he, he was more, uh, he, and, I, and I do love melodrama. So in my first movie was very melodramatic and, so, yeah, I think that they were, and the studio was very thrown by too when Jason Burr to Universal. I don't think they, they were expecting another horror thing from. I mean, from, it's called This is the Night, which yeah, exactly. is so ominous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Dude, yes. And there was one cut that Jason's like, the purge is sneaking in. We had the motorcycle guys being too much of an uh, yeah. masks on. And he's like, okay, let's take that back. We don't need it. And he was, he was right. He was absolutely right. So, uh, so yeah. Uh, I don't know if I answered the question, Charles. I no, you did. You did. Oh, okay. <laughs> so what what this movie is? It's it's not the Purge, but what it is is like a it's a love letter to to cinema and theater going and celebrating kind of the the community that you Absolutely. you get when you are are watching a movie. So uh, did that kind of was that the the impetus for the movie itself? You wanted to celebrate that, or did that just kind of come naturally through the writing of the film? No, I think that's what it was. It was always. Um... I think I'm a, I'm a, my religion in life has been cinema. I think I w- it would save me from <laughs> other paths that I potentially could have gone down. So from five years old, my parents said I was just obsessed with the images that were on screen. And, you know, there was something in New York called the 430 movie that at a very young, at 430, they'd show a movie every day on, on an ABC right after the soap opera Edge of Night. And they had theme weeks, Steve McQueen week, Paul Newman week, Monster week. And from five on, I think I watched that for the next 15 years of my life. And, and it just became my go-to place of, um, uh, there was a sanctuary to it. So I always wanted to pay homage to the, what I feel like saved me and gave me some path in life to follow and a love of something deeply, an obsessive love. So I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta pay tribute to this. I gotta pay tribute to this, what, what film has given me. I'd like to give back something and show my love for it. And there was something about Rocky growing up in Staten Island. You know, I grew up in Staten Island, New York. I moved from Brooklyn, which was very similar ethnically very Italian American neighborhoods that we really did adopt the uh the Rocky character and Rambo I should say Rambo was the other so Stallone based there was something I guess being Italian American we brought him in he was he rose up he succeeded you know Rocky's really about the American dream even Apollo says that you know fourth of July the American dream so I think we adopted him and then listen in speaking with people my my agent's from Florida and he says Rocky three meant a lot to him and his friends so what I thought was specific to my little world I think was more global and obviously the movies made a lot of money. So people were really enjoying them, but it really was a big thing here. We did. So, so the inception of it came from just love of cinema and how do I capture that? And also then all the details of, I remember waiting online three and a half hours for Rocky. <laughs> three. I think the mythology had built up so much in one and two, that three became the one where we all waited all day. We saw it twice in one day. Uh, I remember there were fights on the line, fights inside the movie theaters, all these things kind of added up and it built into this, what over the years in my head became this very, almost mythological time in my life of uh, of uh, the, the ultimate cinematic experience being strangely, I know people hear it, Rocky III, and, uh, but we, it really had these, these real details of being something epic that I do believe the Rocky character inspired a lot of us to, to I, I don't want to say rise up and be better people, but there was something quite inspirational. And there was something about the theater that I remember specifically in Rocky three, where people were literally standing up and cheering and I'll never forget it. And it's weird because I only saw it one other time after that, two times, I should say, 
I saw it in Karate Kid was the other time I saw it. And then recently in Creed. Yeah. Which is amazing. It's the extension of the franchise. So yeah, something about Rocky and then passing it on to Adonis Creed. And, and here I was sort on Staten Island again and people were up. I'm like, Oh my God, he got us out of our seats again. Stallone. <laughs> it's, he's incredible. This man. So yeah, it was all that, but ultimately I was hoping that it would also represent and tell me if I'm babbling Charles. It, no. I wanted to resemble, you know, yes, there's the specificity of Rocky three, but I make this specific choice in the film that when they are watching the movie, in the theater screens, I don't show the movie. I don't, and that was a big edit, editing kind of, a lot of discussion and quarreling in the editing room about, do we show the movie? Even Stallone got involved at some point and gave me a note on that scene. And, and because I wanted it to be more representative, that could be any film that we love. That could go back to, you know, when I see The Great Escape, I just want to, you know, I want to get on a motorcycle, even though I don't ride one and be Steve McQueen. So I wanted that, oh, any movie that anyone could imagine being up there. So that's why I didn't want that specificity. I wanted to be about the emotional reaction of the crowd. And I, I, and we cut us, we did, we did versions of the scene where we actually show a lot of footage from Rocky three. And to me, it didn't work at all because it was too specific. It took the, uh, and you also want to start watching Rocky three. That's the other like <laughs> in the middle of my movie. I don't want people to go, Oh, what happened to Apollo and Flubber Lang? Yeah. So, I really uh, like that. You, uh, you use just kind of the, the film itself, like the exactly. literal film as yeah. the only like touchstone that this is Rocky three, other than what yeah. the characters are reacting. To. And we actually got the film that we got the old film and we went to a theater, we found the old project and we rolled it. So we were playing Rocky three for real. It was really fun to do that with my cinematographer. I was going to ask that when, when yeah. these people are reacting, are they reacting to Rocky? Yes, we put it up on the screen. We That's put it great. Up. Yeah, we put it up there and uh, and we couldn't show the whole movie. So what I did was, because I remember the movie, I would take them through all the emotions. I'm like, oh, this is when Mickey dies. And um, so I took that. I literally stood up there for 15 minutes and we let the cameras roll. We had techno cranes in the, in the theater trying to catch up the poetry of why I wanted to be like opera in that scene. So it was really fun. But we had the movie there too. So they got to see the opening credits with the belt coming across and the rock yeah. and thing. So it was really fun, man. But yeah, it was... The seed was my love of cinema and kind of paying homage to that. Yeah. So this movie, when I was explaining it to people after I watched it, um, I was explaining, you know, it's about three kids who watch or love Rocky three uh, and through some hijinks, Rocky three plays this like vital part in like a whole family's night. Yeah. And it sounds almost like, you know, like this broad comedy, yes. but yes. it's not. And, no. <laughs> and it reminded me more of something like Dazed and Confused or that sort of coming of age film. So I'm curious at any point when you're writing this or conceiving it or even editing it, did you did you think like, man, we should we should go that broad comedy route? Or was this always kind of like the, uh, I, the, the more sentimental tone? Dude, great question, because I, I always wanted the sentimental, more dramatic with some hijinks, like you said, some fun with the boys. And we had the more serious storylines. It was a blending of, I, I think I have, some people think it's a bad quality of mine. I do like to blend tones or genre, which I get yelled at quite often from producers. <laughs> and you can't blend absurdity with drama or horror, but I, I like to put them together. And I was like, oh, we're making more of an indie here. So let's, let's play with that. I think the indie audience is quite astute and they'll be open to experiencing different genres in the same film or different emotions, at least. But I'll say this, the reaction I started getting from people, just like you said, when you pitched it, people thought I was pitching a broad comedy. Like they did not see that this could be go the route of drama or dramedy or sentimentality. They didn't They just saw it. This is almost a specificity is almost ridiculous. Right. It's right on the verge of Rocky three. That's the movie that's inspiring yeah, the people to yeah. rise up and fight their fears. But there is a line. I, I got to say the one line that made me chuckle early on was 
they're waiting in line or they're like, oh, it's Rocky three. This is it. This is the last this is one. <laughs> this is the last one. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so we, I think it's in the trailer that, which is coming out tomorrow. I think that might be in the trailer, which is a funny line. Uh, but yeah, so there is a, there is a, a definite, when I was talking about it, I saw people's reaction going, oh, is he writing a, this is comedic. And I'm like, not just fully. So it's a, it's a total valid question. And even when I look at it now, I'm like, oh, there is a version of this movie that's, that's absolutely, you know, hijinks and crazy night and, you know, just following the boys with craziness. But uh, yeah, again, I like to blend that stuff. So I hope, I hope it succeeded in, in doing that. I'm not sure fully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I won't get into spoilers, but I, I felt every single time that you thought, Oh, this is verging on super bad or something like that. You right. would, you would, you would invert it quite a bit. You'd be like, okay, Oh no, yeah. it's they, they went there, but not in the way you expected. Right. And that, right. Was, yeah, that was yeah. nice. Yeah. Oh, good, man. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Because yeah. that, right. There is the super bad version. I think some people expected that too. And um. So yeah, I'm happy that it worked for you. The different tones. So that was like that was a big point of contention. <laughs> yeah, and 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 so speaking of different tones in your past, this is uh, I think people are you've mentioned them already, but people are going to be shocked when they see the opening credits and Blumhouse Productions pops up there. Yeah. This is not The Purge. This is not <laughs> no. uh, any of those like sinisters or anything like that. You know, and so obviously you have a history with Jason Blum, uh, yeah. a very good history with him. And I'm curious, was there was there a thought like we can't have him involved or was that just like it was always going to be a Jason Blum production? I never thought not to have him. But he's so I'm quite loyal and he's been so good to me with the purge and how he got he was the one, you know, with the purge was not to get into the purge. But I conceived the purge after I'd written Staten Island, New York, and that came out and it had moderate, small success. So we knew we had to do something small against Sebastian and I, my producer. So I wrote The Purge and we wrote it more like we thought we were making like a Michael Haneke funny games, kind of right. very independent, dark thriller. And the early reaction to the script when we sent it around, even Luke Besson, who financed my first film, was like, uh, James, this is too anti-American. It's too nihilistic. You'll never get this made. <laughs> and he's like, I can't finance it. It's too dark, too dark. We heard that from, oh, my God, 50 places, financing places were just like too dark too anti-American, you can't release this. And then Jason saw something. He saw the conceit being bigger than almost the movie itself, that, no, this is saleable on a wider, to a wider audience, which I didn't see. So I, I guess I feel indebted. And he's treated me so well over the years. I, I didn't even think twice, like, oh, he's a horror guy. Because I also knew Jason. When Jason had just left Miramax in, I think, 99, he had optioned a couple of scripts. I was a young writer at the time. And um, we met through people. I, I wrote The Negotiator, and that had come out. So he liked it, and I guess we had a meeting. And he, um, he optioned a couple of scripts. We got to know each other. So I knew Jason from the Miramax when he was a foreign acquisition sales guy, when he wasn't horror. So I feel like I know, I'm like, I know you before. <laughs> <laughs> I know who you really are. And, uh, but he loved horror, but he was also doing art films and uh, foreign acquisition of uh, dramas and whatnot. So, I, so when I gave it to him, I didn't question the, the horror part of it. I was like, oh, Jason just, he's my, you know, he's my, Sebastian and I have a company. We go to Jason with most of our material. And he said, seemed like a natural extension. And, and he loved the script and got us the financing. So it was, uh, it, the fit worked. Um, yeah. Yeah, it worked, yeah. yeah. So uh, another thing that, that might be surprising for some people is, uh, well, I'll preface this by saying I'm a huge Frank Grillo fan. We've actually interviewed him a number of times and oh, okay. he's, he's a great like, dude. And uh, great man. <laughs> when you see him in a movie, you're like, okay, when's he shooting somebody? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm happy to say he doesn't. No. Um, that's not like a big spoiler, but <laughs> no, no, uh, no. he plays like this, this nice Italian dad. And then yeah. you have Naomi Watts playing uh, against part a nice Italian mom. Yeah, uh, yeah, she's yeah. definitely not Italian. <laughs> then you have, uh, you know, all these other characters, specifically the three boys and the older brother um, who were fresh faces to me. I don't know if I, I've seen them in other things. So I'm curious, 
uh, after you got, you know, Bobby Cannavale, Frank Grillo, Naomi Watts, what was it like casting just everybody else? Were you, were you purposefully saying like, I don't want, you know, big people, or is it just like best for the part? Like, how'd you approach it was that? Weird. We actually did the reverse. We, we, you know, Jason, Sebastian and I uh, said, Jason's like, guys, we have to make one pact. If we don't get the right boys, let's not make the film. So we look, we keep looking. And it took us, a, it took us a year, you know, um, on and off casting in New York and LA, trying to find the boys. Because I, I was looking for a very specific, I didn't want to, I think you'll understand. I didn't want to do the cliched Staten Island uh, uh, portrayal, the over the top, heavy accented, which is here. I know I have an accent, but I wanted to get something that was more, a little less provincial, maybe more universal. Could be New York, but not in that overly done. So I was really looking for this specific pocket. And I met some great, great actors who just were too much of that, that thing we've seen in The Sopranos and great stuff, Goodfellas, you know, what, what have you. So I was looking for, and, and so it took a while to get the boys. Once we got the boys and we were happy, we're like, okay, let's move on now. Everybody wanted, a lot of people, I should say, not everybody wanted Frank to play the Bobby part. I didn't want that. So I had to convince everybody, no, no, I want Frank. I think it's fun to, let's, let's get Frank um, uh, vulnerable for the first time since we've worked with him. And I think he enjoyed that too. You know, we're getting to see Frank, like you said, as somebody different, a nice Italian dad. He's struggling with things. He's struggling with a lot of things with his wife and his, his boys. And then to see him get so vulnerable at the end, that's what I enjoyed and see working mm -hmm. with Frank. So I've never seen him get that far. A little at the end of Purge Anarchy, which I hope people who haven't seen it get to see what he's doing at the end of Purge Anarchy, which is a genre movie. But Frank really, when he's talking about his dead son and, and Purge Anarchy, it's wonderful. So he's got that. I knew he had it in him. So Frank was like, oh, he was very happy to get that role and not the standard, what he thought he would be offered was the mobster. And then it was Naomi. How that happened was just one of those one in a million things. Dude, it was... There was a list of names given to me by the casting woman, as they do. I was like, okay, these are the most amazing actresses. And my favorite of these amazing actresses is Naomi Watts. And I'm like, okay, we have a little time. Let's take that crazy big shot at Naomi Watts. She's going to say no, but I can't live with myself if we don't try. So Jason kind of knew her a little bit, sent her the script, and she really responded to the script. She found it very touching. And a week later, we were meeting in New York. We had a great two-hour meeting, and we just kind of hit it off, and lo and behold i have naomi i'm like oh my god naomi watts my favorite actress did you know about boss level i because you know what she had no i didn't know until i took the meeting dude which between you and i i got very bothered by that <laughs> i still make it too i'm friends with carnahan but neither he nor grillo told me i don't know if they knew i was looking at naomi i'm like you bastards took naomi for, for those listening have, yeah for those listening who haven't seen boss level naomi watts plays frank grillo's wife in that and they're and they're very good in that too and so i watched that and i'm like oh is this like a boss level prequel right exactly exactly <laughs> so i'm like i don't even want to look at boss level until this is over it'll bother me so when yeah very, very crazy dude that they uh that i didn't I, when they shot back to back i think Literally, Frank came from boss level to my set. He just completed that. He was quite jacked at the time, and he just finished boss level. So we had to hide, try to hide his muscular. I was going to ask that, too. He's in the baggiest clothes throughout oh, this. I'm like, that is I not Frank Grillo. <laughs> you saw what he looked like in boss level. So I'm like, Frank, I can't have. I saw him in an this. interview. He yeah. had When we interviewed him on Zoom, he had just come from a boxing like workout oh, or something. Oh, my God. And I just, I felt like such, I felt like less of a man, to be <laughs> honest too. with you. Whenever I'm around Frank, I feel like less of a man. That's like, yeah. Frank, you make me feel emasculated every time I'm near you. You're like yeah. a hyper masculine man. So, yeah, so I did. So he, so we had a kind of baggy, you know, put him in these baggy things to hide the muscularity he built. He put on like 20 pounds of muscle for boss level. So, yeah, so teaming up him and Naomi, I hadn't seen Boss Level. Luckily, they were still editing, too. Joe was editing for a while. And um, so, yeah, so it was just this, and they hit it off. Those two hit it off great. And then Bobby came in. 
I think Bobby and I shared similar memories of Rocky three. He had a very similar memory of seeing it with all the guys from the neighborhood and loving it and being inspired by Stallone. So I think when he read it, it was oddly had an autobiographical feel for him too. Like there was something about New York. And again, I say New York, but then I'm learning that it's way beyond New York. But uh, yeah, so and then Bobby came in and we got, it was just, it's kind of fell into place. And then Method Man came in after that, which was great. Too. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention Method yeah, Man. Yeah, lives in there. So he lives up the street from me over here. So just having him in the fabric of a Staten Island thing, he's such an iconic Staten Island guy. So it, it was fun, man. It was great. And we got to shoot here too, which was great for me and Method because we were close to our houses too. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we, just to, to, to wrap it up with the whole theater going thing of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a movie, like we said, that celebrates theater going. And and I know you're probably well aware that theater going is in a bit of a crisis right now. Absolutely. And so this is a great movie to, to come out now because it does really kind of bring you back. It's that nostalgia. So uh, what's also interesting is having Jason Blum involved because this man has figured out in through all of this how to uh, make money at the box office when not a lot of people can. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are because again, The Purge is a huge success at the box office um, and, and it's kind of following that Jason Blum formula. Yeah. So do you really, do you feel that, that we're losing that experience, A, and then B, that the future of it is, you know, micro budget indies and uh, superheroes? Yeah. Well, you, you just said it all. It, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it's my biggest concern in, in our lives and as people in this business is that, and I, I, I worry about it, not just for the business, but for the cultural impact, because I do believe, I don't believe you can replicate the experience at home. And I tried to build a, I tried to build my own replica of like a small theater. And even that I, yeah, I like watching movies, but I don't love it. I don't love it. Like I do when I go to a theater and I can share it with people. So I don't think we can replicate it. I'm sure that we can't. And that terror, that scares me because I don't want this new generation. I even see some of my daughters, my daughter's 10, 11, she just turned 11. I see some of her friends who just don't care about movies. And I, and I, I know they're on TikTok and I know they're on, and I don't blame them. They're being pulled in so many different directions. Luckily, my daughter, well, I should, I say luckily, maybe it's mean, but I, I introduced her early. I make her watch things. So I've introduced, introduced her to the culture of film. I do worry if the next generations are being pulled apart from it, away from it. And we're seeing that in the numbers in the movie theaters. We're seeing that they're not going. I heard a stat that as, you know, in my, I'm older than you do, but my, in my youth, I think people went 10 times a year. They, you know, they have all these statistics. So the average American went 10 times a year to the movies. I think they go twice a year now. And that's yeah. terrifying. So that's not a sustainable number. You know, people are watching at home. And oddly, horror, sorry, I give Jason credit, people still, I guess, there's still something communal. People want to experience horror in a communal venue. They don't want to do it alone. I understand that. So it's great that horror brings people to the movies, as does Marvel, as does Star Wars. How do, my question I keep asking is, well, how do we get those people who go to Marvel, Star Wars, and horror, how do we get them to go to other genres of film, dramas, thrillers, action? The action film is dying. I'm a big action guy. Yeah, same. You know, we, I grew, that's what we grew up on, right? So where are the, the great action films? Um, and uh, people don't go to them if they do get made. And that's what's scary. So they're making them for Netflix and, and, and Amazon and the streamers. So yeah, dude, it's really scary. Jason's figured something out with the horror that he, he knows how to get people in the seats in the theater. And I think I'm afraid that horror is going to get overdone now because I think people are saying that's the fear too, right? So we're going to get an inundation of horror as we move forward because they know kids are still going to the theater. And I just worry that we're going to lose, it's going to become an art of, it's going to become opera where only big movies, it's going to be $50 to go see a Marvel film. And there's going to be much less, um, uh, fewer houses, fewer theater houses. And uh, that scares me. Man. I don't I don't have the answer to any of this. No. I, uh, I just worry. And then the streamers offer something sometimes too that 
since they're not bound to putting asses in seats, they can take some creative chances that the studios can't. So you, then, you, then you're a lord, you know, you're yeah. lord away. Yeah. But the sacrifice is, is in, it's enormous too, you know? So it's, uh, and you see it with Mar, you know, Scorsese and Spielberg are being lord to the, and when that happens to them, it, we're all obviously, <laughs> we're all yeah. getting fucked in it. You know, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's a weird time, man. It's weird. And it's really scary to me. So, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, I, I do want to get to talk about The Purge a little bit. But before yeah. we do that, just to, to wrap up This Is The Night, I think that to me is the the most uh, nostalgic part of this movie is that that opening where not only is it the seat sitting with a crowd in the theater, which we all miss right now, but also the whole like what's going to happen in a movie, um, only having, a, you know, some chances to see it and, I, and all these things, the, the excitement, I just, I, I, I miss that. I, oh, do. Dude, I miss it. I miss it. I love that you said one thing, dude, you know, the other thing that was amazing, like the movie that really changed my life completely was, and my dad was probably doing something quite inappropriate. He was taking me to R-rated movies when I was six and seven. Oh, same here. Yeah, yeah so you know. So he took yeah. me to Apocalypse Now. I think I was seven. At the time. Wow. And, and it changed me. I probably didn't understand an ounce of the film, but there was something visually that when I left, I, I actually remember the moment saying, I have to be part of whatever that, whatever happened up there in that room and made me feel the things I felt. I have to be part of it. I have to do something like that in my life. And, and um it's just i just wonder i don't know how we get back i don't know if this is i don't know man i'm very worried that kids aren't experiencing the way we did but there was something about all the and i know my point sorry i'm I'm jumping all over the place my point was i didn't see apocalypse now for six years after that viewing so i didn't have access to it and i think there was it also made movies a little bigger than what they i shouldn't say bigger than what they were they grew in our heads over time because we didn't have access to them now i'm an I speak out of both sides of my mouth because I do watch movies over and over. So if I love something, I watch it over and over. But I do think there was something about not having access. You see it and then it lives in your head and you make it into something and it, it just breeds, it becomes an impression, it becomes a dream. And uh, we don't have that anymore because we have such accessibility to these. They're not as a, they're not as event. They're not an event like they used to be. And that's what I think is scary. It is. Yeah. So um, let's, let's talk about The Purge a little bit, because I got to tell you, The Purge is very near and dear to my heart. Um, (laughs) It is a franchise that I just absolutely adore. Uh, And just as a quick aside, just to tell you, I, my, my daughter was born June 5th. And the first time my wife and I escaped was to go see the Forever Purge. Oh, she was born just congratulations to this June. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you so, stuck out to see the Forever Purge. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is a I take it very seriously, and and because of that, I, I personally I think it's a very thematic franchise. I think it, there's a lot to it that people just kind of you know they see the masks and the violence and they talk about that. I think yeah. I I think it's just brilliant the way it grows. So I want. You, you mentioned this a little bit before, but when you're when you're writing this, uh, when you conceived of it, did you you had no clue it was going to turn into what it did, right? No, no, no. Literally, I thought it would play at the end. When did it sink in? Up. It sunk in not until the Friday night it opened, because even the day before, and there was many times where I, I was told it wasn't going to get released in theaters because it was still the early Blumhouse model. It was, it was his first movie he made at Universal. He had made, I think, Sinister and Insidious, but at Paramount. So we were the first at Universal. He didn't know really what was happening, if people were really grabbing hold of this, this smaller movie model. And Universal was on the fence with the film. They're like, it's very dark and disturbing. We don't know. And they kept saying, we're not going to release it. Oh, we're going to release it. It kept going back and forth for about a year. Finally, I remember it was coming out. They said, we're going to release it. They marketed it. And still, I remember two days before it opened, I, I said to my agent, I said, what do, what do we have to do? I just want to make another film. That's all I care. I just want to make another film. So where, where do I, how do I not go into director jail? 
Like what number? <laughs> so I hate paying attention to all the finances, but you know, they had repercussions on our lives. So we have to. So he's like, well, if you do 10 and you're tracking at nine, 10 right now, that was the tracking on the, that Wednesday, you're tracking at nine, 10. So if you do 10 and you made it for 2.5, that's a wonderful opening. You should be very happy with that. So let's hope it opens where the tracking says. So I was like, okay, 10, we end up making 25, 27, 30, maybe that'd be great. That's a good run for a small film. And then dude, that Friday night, I think we did 18 on the Friday. Yeah, and I remember Donna Langley, the head of studio, called me that Friday night, and I, and I remember I had some friends over here in Staten Island, and um, all local guys and girls, and we were just all like, "It's the head of the studios calling James." Oh my god! And it was just that's when it sunk in that I was talking to Donna Langley in my house. My parents were sitting there with me, my old Italian parents, and I'm like, okay, something's maybe changed. This is odd. This is not, you know, this is a changing of something. And I immediately spoke of part two, and I had that in my head already. So. That's when it came to like, wow, this is bigger than what I ever thought it would be. And um, may I make more movies, which is ultimately, that's all that matters. <laughs> you know, all the yeah, other stuff yeah. is like, oh, I just want to make another movie. <laughs> so. so so, I think one of the most impressive things with uh, the Purge franchise is the world building. Um, I think that first movie is very much a home invasion thriller. Like you mentioned, funny games, that sort of thing. Um, I, I, I think then with each movie, what I, what I found fascinating is you peel back a new layer. You know, this, the second movie shows the purge on the other side. The third movie introduces the politics and so on, you know, exactly. and I'm curious when you, when you sat down to write the first one, uh, did you have this world in your head or have you been not, not making up it as you go, but like, you know, how much of this was, was there at the beginning? I'd say what was there to be is a great question, dude. It was, it was sketchy, but some of it was there. I always thought it was a metaphor for, you know, it was, it was conceived out of my feelings on uh, the lack of gun control laws in America. That's really the seed of it. And then other things fed that. And I was living in Paris at the time I was uh, posting my first, first film that I directed in, in Paris. So I'd seen there was a different relationship with guns and violence in Europe than there was in America from where I grew up. And I knew so many people with guns here. I, I didn't meet any French people with guns. So I just, I really was contemplating that. Then there was a road rage incident with my wife. And she said this very strange thing after the incident about one free one a year. She was very <laughs> angry that this drunk driver almost killed us. And uh, that stayed with me, like this one legal murder. She said it out of anger. She's a good woman. I shouldn't <laughs> demonize her. And, I, I uh, feel like we, everybody said that at least once. Exactly. We all said that. We all get angry. So I can't, then this holiday came about in my head, but it was always a metaphor for gun control. And the second metaphor was always about the government's treatment of the impoverished. Because I always said on Purge Night, who's going to die? It's the people we can't take care of. We don't want to take care of. And the real conceit, though it's being pushed as a, as a societal catharsis that's going to make you better because you purge your anger. What they're really doing is, well, let's get rid of all the homeless. Let's get rid of the disenfranchised, the people we don't want to spend money on healthcare, and we're going to save ourselves economically. So it's a, the conceit is really mon monetary. It's a monetary conceit, the purge. So I had those bases, you know, and that was there with the homeless stranger. He was the one, he was the real victim of the evening. And, and um, so with that, I think though, that little architecture of what I wanted it to be. And we built upon like the, the disenfranchised being eliminated by the government uh, hit squads in, in part two. And then slowly when we got to be honest, when we got a little more freedom because we had this, when, when you have a success, you get to sneak more stuff. You know, it's Sebastian and I, my main, my main producer who's on set with me every day and, you know, gives me all the creative notes. We always talk about this thing that I read about that Scorsese said called smuggler cinema, which is he was referring to the, the Westerns and the army movies that all the studio directors were forced to do in the fifties. And they were so, they didn't want to do these over. I just did four Westerns. Now I got to do four more. But what they, what he said they were doing, which I found fascinating was to get through it. They were smuggling socio-political ideas into the genre picks. 
to kind of entertain themselves and keep themselves you know engaged in what they were making. So we we said let's try to keep sneaking, subversively sneaking in, you know, thoughts about the American landscape, political, socio-political landscape. And we got to build more as the freedom grew, as the purge became successful. You know, they would reel us in smartly because we also don't want to proselytize and preach to the audience. So they were always like, okay, DeMonica, we know what you're trying to do. Stop. <laughs> Just stop. And don't use these words because there's certain words that were, Ill- you know, not illegal, but you can't say this. You'll demonize part of the audience. So it was a check and balance. But so the, the, the I think it's the seeds of the architecture about the sociopolitical points I wanted to make were a little bit there in one. And then with success, we were able to expand on that. And really then, even when Gerard came in on part four and then Everardo even more in five, I think the landscape of America had become so tumultuous politically that we were now in a position to really start reflecting even more so than we did in the previous films about what was happening here. So one of the things that I found most interesting about the legacy of The Purge, it kind of plays off of that because you weren't able to um, to, to, to really kind of hammer home the, the, the subtle politics in the first one as much. And so a lot of people took it as, you know, this is a really cool holiday where you get to murder people and wear masks. Absolutely, dude. And yeah. so I'm curious when, when you're watching the reaction, because it's a great reaction. Your movie is hugely successful, having cultural impact, but you're seeing it kind of get misconstrued. Did that ever bother you at the oh, beginning? God. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And not to get too deeply into this, you know, we test the film. 300 people per test. Each film gets tested three times. And it's a torturous process because it's a good process, yet it's torture because you're really seeing where the movie doesn't work. And then you re- I, have, I have to read every comment. That's my job, right? So I have to read them all. And you start seeing that certain people in the audience truly misconstrue it. And then people, then there are people in the audience who really get it. And that's, a, that's wonderful to see. Yet on the flip side of that, when someone sees it as, oh, it's wish fulfillment, the purge is wish fulfillment, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, I know we have no control how what we make is interpreted, but it's still, it's still disconcerting at points when someone can, because when I watch the films, what I see, I see a clear moral play at, at work. You know, purges are usually vilified and they, they, they face their demise and the non-purges are the heroes and uh, usually by the end of the film, we always end the films with saving a life, not taking a life. So it's clear as day to me. Yet, listen, we can't speak to how anything is interpreted that we do. So, but it is, yes, perfect word, dude. Quite disconcerting at points. It's quite yeah. disconcerting, yeah, yeah. So it's building off that even, I my favorite parts of the last two movies, um, I feel are just how overtly political they are. Um, (laughs) And some people kind of criticize you because they feel that these films have no subtlety to the message. And they're like, oh, he hits you over the head with a hammer of politics. But I see it as kind of a genius move because you're just eliminating that ambiguity. Um, so yeah. you're saying like, no, you can't misconstrue this because I'm, I'm being obvious. Yeah. So I'm curious, was that your idea with the, the last two in particular and, and kind of moving forward? Dude, I'm so happy you said that because I do get hammered. You know, I get smashed by certain people in the media, whereas I'm like, I'm not, we always say the purge thing, Sebastian, and I jokingly say, we are not going near, this is not trying to be subtle in any way, shape, or form. Like you said, we are using a sledgehammer. And uh you know, the movies in Europe are called, and Sebastian came up with this, and they, they took it, they loved it. The European audience, it's released as American Nightmare. So, you know, wow. it's not, it's not, there's no subtlety to what we're saying about America. You know, and people, you know, God, I've been accused of being, a, you know, just, a, you know, what's the word, Benedict Arnold, all these terrible things about, but I, listen, I love the country, and I think we need to put a mirror up to it to make it better. So let's confront our issues. Now, let's, let's not shy away from them, and let's, you know, hit them and go make them better, make this world better. We have to confront what's wrong with us. So that's my point. But yeah, 
dude, it's not subtle. We're not trying to be subtle. That's definitely <laughs> the purge is the opposite of a subtle. Was that was that a, a response to the misconstruing of the first couple? I think so. I absolutely do. It was kind of like you're not get you're not getting what we're going for here. You, you know, let's just keep going. Let's keep pushing it. And that was the beauty of bringing in even um, I'd say Gerard, Gerard, who was a huge fan of the franchise, and he saw it exactly for what it what we wanted it to be. And he actually he told me things that were really eye opening to me that he had a college class where they actually taught the purge a little bit uh, as a, as a metaphor for the plight of the black, uh, the black citizens of America. And I'm like, okay, okay now people are uh, that I'm happy. That's the interpretation that I prefer over the flip, which is wish fulfillment of some sort that I can go out and kill people I don't like tonight. And um, so, yeah, so Gerard, once Gerard came on, we began to say, okay, let's stop being subtle at all. Let's go further. And Gerard was up for that. And then Everado Iaco, to be quite honest, Everado was even worse than me in trying to like sneak everything in. And so we, we made this like dynamic duo of like, let's get, let's make this non let's make the least subtle and go all in on our politics. And, you know, because ultimately I do think the message is quite idealistic. It's like, we can all get along. That's really, you know, uh, in a way. So we're not, what's the word? It's, it's hard to even explain what I'm trying to say. Like, I think what we're saying is quite universal. It's hard to go against the ultimate, the end messages, which is we can figure this out. And uh, yeah, but no subtlety. And, and, and we definitely went further in four and five. Once we had a success dude, coupled with these two new members of the team who really wanted to push it, it was kind of a fun place to go. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's what, when, when I describe it to people, when I'm like, you guys got to watch the purge, I describe it as, as it turns into a lot of fun because it, it, you, by wiping away the subtlety, you're just like, Oh, this is just, you can just enjoy it for what it is. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So So, uh, thank you for saying that. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm a fan. So when the forever purge was marketed, uh, it was marketed as the final purge. Um, right. But I think even before the movie came out, there were interviews where you were like, or I think maybe it was Jason Blum who was saying like, oh, I want him to make more. Yeah. And you were saying like, well, maybe I have an idea. Maybe Frank Grillo can come back as yeah. Leo. Like maybe we can do it. Who knows? Who knows? And then recently Frank Grillo, or not even recently, just he's he's very open. And he said that, you know, script's done and uh, it's coming. And we're doing Purge 6. So I know you can't talk about it, sure. but I, I want to talk about kind of what obviously wasn't a misdirection, right? Like, you oh. did you intend for Forever Purge to kind of put the, the pin on it and the button on I, it? I did, dude. And this is where I, I shouldn't speak out loud because I intended part three to be the end. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then I like, then I had the idea for four to, to show the seed of it all. And then, and that's how it got resurrected at that point. And the success of three led to four, obviously. And then five, though, what I, I swear I should be struck down. Um, five was intended to be the end. It was supposed to be the end of America, too. That was like, oh, end of, the end of America as we know it. And we're going to restart, uh, meaning restart America, hopefully. In the yeah. And so, yeah, it was absolute intent. Sebastian and I were kind of like, we're done. That's it. Move on. Let's move on. And then I, this truly what happened. I woke up one day in the middle of the tumultuous kind of political, so, sociopolitical landscape that we now live in even more, you know, accentuated during COVID. And I just woke up with this idea, this very strange, it was a strange, I think, but I hope people will be happy with where we're going. And I just woke up with it. I pictured to Sebastian. He actually, his first words were like, oh, fuck you, man. Like, <laughs> no, no. Like, he's like, I like it. I don't want to like it. But he was like, I really like it. Let's tell Jason. We told Jason he really liked it. And he's like, okay, let's call Peter. Peter's who we work with at the studio. Peter really liked it. He's like, all right, go write it. So I went off, I wrote it. Everybody seems happy. But I don't know. I haven't, I can't lie. No green light, you know, nothing like that right. has happened. So I think they're still weighing, you know, their options at the studio about 
you know, what they want next. You know, I think, listen, I think every studio, everybody's wondering what is the theatrical experience and what feeds into that? What movies do, can we make for that? So I think they're weighing that all as we debut, you know, with the home video. So, but dude, it's written. It's uh, it's, I, I would say if it is the return of Frank Grillo, the Leo character comes back. It's about 10 years after forever purge. And um, it, I will say one thing I can give, I think is that we, we open, we come to a new America. America has been remapped. I would say along okay. very strong, unsubtle. Tribal lines. <laughs> <laughs> so the map of America is completely changed and we've become quite tribal. Uh, and I think, I think it's an interesting place to start. That's yeah. awesome. So yeah. I, well, that, that kind of plays into my, to my final question here about this. Cause I, when, when the forever purge ended and without giving away the ending for people yeah. Yeah. It, it specifically, I looked at it as, well, yes, this is the end of this story, but it felt more of like the end of act one than oh, it did of, of like a, the whole thing. Cause you, you do set up this, like you said, this next kind yeah. of like fall sort of. And, and so I'm, I'm curious, do you see this as I'm not going to tell you to predict the future or anything, but do you see purge six as kind of act two? Yes. That's a great way. It's weird that you felt that at the end of five, because that's exactly how Sebastian talks about now that we're doing. He's like, wow, what six is, is, he says, we can do six movies in sick in the world that you've created. And now six, we almost can do, we can run with this because it's a new America and we can take the purge in a new way. So yes, it almost feels like act two. Now I know people will be like, Oh, these guys stop it. Please stop it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it does feel like we might be able to keep going at when I thought five was done now, oddly at the end of writing six, I'm like, Oh, I don't feel like it's over. Whereas I felt that when I wrote five, it's weird. Like, like you said, it feels like almost like an act two now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm all for calling it American Nightmare. That is, I didn't know that, and I love that title. I love that. I think (laughs) maybe they should call because they always come up with they always change my titles, but like I think it's Purge Anarchy was Purge Assassins in my you know when I wrote it, and they're like, no, 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 like Demonico, shut up, go away. So it was always (laughs) uh, the marketing team always comes up with a better title than me. So I yeah, so maybe but Purge Six could be called the Purge American Nightmare. I mean that's great. (sighs) Yeah, so good. Right? So good. It gets oh, me excited yeah. already. <laughs> exactly. um, so yeah, I, I, I'm going to wrap up. So Thank you, uh, I, I, I really enjoy talking about this is the night, which is, uh, which is coming uh, short run in theaters yes. starting September 17th. And then, exactly. um, you know, people will be able to see it much wider after that. Exactly. Uh, so everybody go see that, especially if you want to see the purge guy, quote unquote, do something different. Hey, uh, different yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and especially if you love Rocky, because, yes. Yes. If you oh love Rocky. man, <laughs> the movie, right? Like you, you have to, you have to, if you're a Rocky fan, it's almost an extension of the franchise in some way. So it, yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's really a love letter to Rocky into yes. film. So it's, it's exactly. really great. And, and, um, and also forever purge coming out on Blu-ray. Uh, I'm lucky enough. I already got my copy, um, but uh, yeah, everybody, everybody go see it. So yeah. Joel, thank, thank you so you, much, man. James. Great. Great. Talk soon, man. Thank you so much. Right, have a good one. Thank you.